all CEOs, me included, we don't actually know what we're doing. They're all sharks, so all you got to do, though, is no shark bait. I don't think we've ever talked about this before. <laughs> we can capture all of the wallet share. First place you start is with the product. That's just the first nut. This is the Capital Stack. Hey, everybody, this is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast, where I talk to founders, operators, and investors about all things value creation within startups. Today, I am speaking to Benji Colte, who is the founder and CEO, co-founder and CEO of Galley, which is a culinary operating system, which you could classify as a vertical software as a service platform or a vertical data platform. Uh, servicing the food service industry. Uh, Benji, how are you doing and how bad did I butcher your last name? Doing great. You were pretty pretty darn close. It's Coltai, but uh, Colte is, is a common one. So appreciate it. Appreciate you having nice. me on the podcast. What's it like seeing me with missing tooth? Does that weird you yeah, out? Yeah, I was going to say, who, who, does the other guy look worse? <laughs> the other guy was the dentist. Um, I have a I, I have a fake tooth right here, but like it's really uncomfortable, and I feel like we're close enough that I don't have to wear it. I don't need. I could be myself. Yeah. We're definitely on the toothless level for sure. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm just gonna let my hair down, and we're just gonna we're gonna let all. You got great teeth. Are those real teeth? These are real teeth, man. Didn't not what not I, one crack. Not one crown. No, I've got my parents to thank. Uh, orthodontics, headgear, the, the full full nine when I was a teenager. I looked really cool, but pays off in adulthood. And you actually wore your headgear. And I actually wore my headgear. I was one of those <laughs> kids. <laughs> <laughs> no one admits they were ha- had headgear. No. Um, I like to open with that. You're being vulnerable. I'm being vulnerable. <laughs> yeah, I know, exactly. Oh, dude, I got to put my tooth in. It's so scary seeing me laugh. <laughs> with that, I look like a deranged homeless person. Um, nothing wrong with being homeless, but... Uh, no, yeah, <laughs> nothing wrong with being a deranged homeless person. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, all right, Benji, why don't you tell me your origin story and the story of Galley, and we could just go from there. Sure. Uh, so my origin story um, started in college where I discovered computer science, uh, developed a love for it. So ended up becoming a computer science major sophomore year after thinking I was going to be a psychology and economics major. Um, so I discovered computer science uh, late, I guess, and got my degree, uh, joined a that at, then, uh, at that time a startup called Box, uh, was a summer intern there. Uh, while they were still relatively small, worked there uh, for my junior year summer and then two years out of college and worked on enterprise SaaS. Um, you know, Box is a now public enterprise um, SaaS offering content uh, management and learned a lot there of how uh, not to build software and, and, and how to uh, build software to scale and, you know, experienced a lot of the struggles with tech debt there. So, Got some good learnings there about building enterprise technology. Uh, got burnt out uh, working at Box. And um, in college, I had also gotten diagnosed with Crohn's disease. Um, and that influenced my next move after Box. So Crohn's disease is an autoimmune um, 
bowel disease, uh, essentially inflammatory bowel disease. My doctor told me, look, there's nothing you can do about it. It doesn't matter what you eat. Uh, you're just going to have to live with this disease. Luckily, I met my now wife uh, when I moved to San Francisco after uh, school, and she was uh, on a gluten-free diet before gluten-free was really, you know, mainstream and popular. And she recommended that I try it. And so I tried it and it had a big impact on my health. My, my guts, uh, shockingly were impacted by what I was eating. And the fact that I wasn't eating gluten, uh, reduced my symptoms. And so, uh, this is all relevant to the story because, um, I ended up getting contacted by a food tech startup called Sprig when I was at Box looking for my next gig. And Sprig was one of the first virtual-only, full-stack, uh, sort of delivery-only restaurants. So before Uber Eats and Postmates and DoorDash and virtual restaurants existed as a thing, the founders of Sprig had the great idea in 2013 that people wanted to use their phones to order delicious, healthy food um, and get it delivered. And so uh, I ended up joining Sprig and started using the product. And because I was gluten-free, every time I opened the app, the app would show, is this gluten-free or not? And frequently it would show the wrong item, uh, the wrong label. So it would say, it wouldn't say that a dish was gluten-free when it was, that typically happened with new dishes that we were putting out. Um, or much worse, it would say that a dish was gluten-free and I would catch it and say, well, this actually isn't gluten-free because it has faro. So let's go ahead and change the flag. And I was like, why, you know, we own the full stack. We make our own food. We have the customer app that we make ourselves and we deliver the food all in one company. How is there not better data flowing from the kitchen into these other apps? Um, and that's when I realized that the kitchen doesn't have technology. Most kitchens are run on spreadsheets. They're run on pencil and paper. And because there wasn't a system of record, a source of truth for what a recipe was, we couldn't easily compute the gluten-free tag to show in the customer app. And that was impacting me personally as a consumer of the product. And so being a software engineer on a really small team, I decided to just take on that problem sort of selfishly, but also having seen and heard from the culinary team how hard their job was of just making thousands of meals a day. It's, it, it's, you know, it's an incredible thing that chefs can get done what they get done with such little support from technology. So I started with the recipe management tool at Sprig. I built a web app that the R&D team used to write their recipes so that the customer app that we also built could pull from that database and calculate whether a dish was gluten-free or not, and I accomplished my goal. And once we had this catalog of recipes, everybody started getting really excited about what we could do with that. Well, the city planning team who schedules the menus every day, and we had a daily rotating five items that were available, they wanted to access that recipe catalog so that they could start building menus weeks out and understand what was going to be available from the culinary team. So they started building these menus where a menu is a collection of five recipes with a specific volume. I want 500 of the chicken dish, 400 of the beef dish, and 300 of my salad. Well, once you have that, what can you do next? Well, you can add costing to those recipes. And now you can have a projected margin or a projected food cost. And you can start to blend your menu so that you have a loss leader that's maybe a premium offering that brings people into the app. And you couple it with a salad that you make your margin on. And so that 
costing information got added to the app. Okay, well, now that you have menus, can I generate a pick list and an inventory list? Can I generate a purchasing guide? So it all kind of snowballed from there, and I ended up building this entire culinary operating system just for Sprig with that completely unique sort of one-on-one experience. And that was the birth of Galley. So that was the first version of Galley. It was actually called Galley within Sprig. And all the chefs who used it, who came from all different places uh, previously said, dude, I would have paid so much money to have this at my airline food production facility or hotel or Michelin star restaurant or whatever it was. I had distilled what it is to make food into these core five components of recipes, menus, inventory, purchasing, and production. And so they essentially encouraged me to keep Galley, the system that I had built alive, even when Sprig shut down in 2017. And so 2017 came around. I partnered with Ian, my co-founder, who has a background in hospitality and the culinary world in a completely different way. And we have been rebuilding this system and enhancing it and bringing all these incredible team members on board along with this, along with us on this journey. Wow, that's incredible. So you built essentially this product as a homegrown solution for kind of an existing software company. You found a ton of signal within, you know, people within the industry. And then you decided, hey, we could build a whole business around this. And so how I think about your product, and it it really is a bottoms up approach to forecasting inventory management food life cycle. Is that how it's traditionally been? Or has most of most of, um, you know, menus and costing been done from a tops down perspective? Exactly. So it's, it's largely been well, first of all, it's largely not been right. So this is sort of a zero to one, not a better mousetrap for a previous system. So a lot of our customers are coming to us from having nothing at all. And what they did have was brute force. What we did last week is what we'll do again this week, sort of that trial and error, tightening the screws incrementally. Um, So to a certain extent, they're coming in with like nothing and we're just completely leveling them up. Now, there are solutions out there that are accounting based. So, you know, and these are largely restaurant facing. um, And we haven't talked about our ideal customer profile yet, but we are not necessarily focusing on restaurants we have restaurants as customers but we look at kitchens in a very broad Mm -hmm. sense but restaurants have point of sale kitchens yeah commercial kitchens yeah so uh restaurants have point of sale and that's a nice entry point to say okay well i know what your revenue is let me plug into your invoices or your accounting system and i'll get a sense of what your costs are and i'll start to give you these analytics about what you're spending but that's just observational it's not informative it's not predictive it's not decision making it's Exactly to your point, it's not bottoms up, it's top down. Yeah, you're seeing, hey, you sold X amount of cheeseburgers. We could say a cheeseburger is a quarter of a pound. So, you know, we probably need, you know, X amount of pounds of burger next week. Exactly. Right. But they're not accounting for, well, we also had meatballs and the meatballs or we had bolognese also. And the bolognese took less meat, but there's a lot more of it. And, you know, we actually mispriced the or we mis miscalculated how much beef we actually really do need. Yep. Exactly. And from an inventory perspective, it's it loses all of the nuance that exists in food where you're cross ideally, if you're doing it right, you're cross utilizing your ingredients. Um, and so, you know, a big need for point of sale systems is, hey, I need to be able to take items that I've run out 
off my menu because no one likes ordering the meatballs and then having the server come back and say, sorry, we were out or ordering it on a delivery app. They see, oh, I can have meatballs. I'm going to build my whole cart around that. And then, oh, by the way, we're out of that dish and they didn't remove it from the delivery app. But that's a really hard problem when you think about it because you need to take meatballs and burgers and you know whatever else off the menu the moment you run out of ground beef. Um, right. But you need to know what the recipe is. You know, maybe right. it's the moment you run out of Dijon mustard or whatever obscure ingredient that that kitchen uses for those dishes. The inventory problem is fundamentally different if you're coming at it from that recipe up level versus if you're coming at it from like a menu skew level down. Yeah, no, I totally buy that. And so you say it's a zero to one product. Can you talk a little bit about your customer Um ideal customer profile and what's the stack because this kind of smells you know if i was to compare this to a manufacturing you know an oem um it would kind of smell like erp right so like how do you think about this in conjunction with erp yeah it's a great question so we have had customers who are the most manufacturing like who were using ERP systems who came over to us because they are manufacturing. So that customer profile is the meal delivery type customer, um, mm-hmm. freshly thistle territory foods, purple carrot, the ones that, you know, you get the flyers delivered to your house and you can buy the pre-made meals. They show up cold or frozen and you reheat them. And these these meals are getting made in huge manufacturing like facilities. And so they pick up an ERP system uh, intuitively and then realize that onions are different than screws. And the Mm -hmm. ERP system doesn't have the nuance and the sophistication that organic material requires in terms of shelf life and trim yield and all the cross utilization that's possible. And also the users are not process engineers who have, you know, secondary to college degrees. These are people who might not even have high school degrees. And you're asking them to use a system, an ERP system, and it looks like programming to them. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, so coming in with a culinary education or no education uh, means that you are a different kind of user persona. You have a different technology literacy sometimes, and you want something that just feels simpler. Um, And so the ERP system is typically more complex and not well suited to the food domain, uh, which is where we're able to displace those systems and provide a more useful domain specific, but very similar in its functionality. You can tell us what your bombs are. We'll tell you the processes required. We'll tell you the sort of ingredients that you need to buy where a bomb is a bill of materials and in the food domain, that's a recipe. Um, So you're absolutely right. It, It looks very much like an ERP. That prepared meal company is one ideal customer that we have had. Um, They boomed in COVID. They're kind of coming back to earth a little bit post-COVID. Another big customer that we have had is in the college and university space, hospitals. So uh, what's called contract food service. Um, So these are food service companies that are providing food at institutions whose primary business is not food. Um, And there's a huge volume of food that needs to get made. These are massive kitchens. So it's that same idea of a large commissary kitchen that's putting out a lot of food that's typically high variability, um, high complexity, large recipe catalog, uh, and therefore big big room for, for savings and optimization from a labor and food spend perspective. 
So where does, um, that is an awesome explanation. Thank you. Where does data naturalization and what does that mean to you when it comes to a product like this? Because I know data within food service is pretty messy. I invested in a food service data company myself, and there is a need to kind of um, level the playing field as it comes to data. So how do you think about that? Yeah, it's a great question. So, um, and maybe let me just clarify from my perspective, like normalizing the data and saying, hey, you call this uh, large onion and this other person calls this onion comma large. And those are actually the same thing, but two different users just like to use two different names for it. So how does the system understand and support the user to say, well, you're both talking about an onion. And so I'm going to normalize that to an onion so that I can add value to your data from a system perspective. Is that sort of what you're getting at correct correct or like not even from a user how a user likes it but maybe that's how the food service distributor gives you the data right or or order the data uh uh, like a waffle fry is also a lattice cut fry right exactly yeah yeah great okay great point so you know this is this is sort of the secret sauce of the platform and our our approach is to allow everybody to use whatever names they want. We don't expect anybody to use the same name. And what we instead do is we allow you to link the entity. So our chef might call it a waffle fry. And Cisco, one of their suppliers, might call it a lattice cut frozen organic fry. And that waffle fry in the recipe can get linked to that specific Cisco item. And U.S. Foods might have a different name for it. And the local producer of waffle fries might have a different name for it. But all three of those entities, which we call vendor items, can be linked to what we call a product in Galley that allows the kitchen domain to be unimpacted by the supply chain, which is using their own maybe obscure nomenclature or unique nomenclature. And those links can happen, uh, you know, in a worst case manually, where a user is saying, well, these two things are linked. And then as we get more data from that user, as well as other users on our platform, we can start to predict and suggest to say, hey, I see this item in your vendor list and I see this item in your product catalog. And we think that those two things are connected. And so we can start to assist the user with, you know, ML, AI sort of stuff that says, this is what we think uh, your data means and go ahead and supervise us. And like all those types of learning systems, human in the loop is critical. But as you can build these algorithms that do more of that uh, heavy lifting and the associating, you can handle a lot more of that inconsistency and error. That's fantastic. And so without a doubt, I consider this a platform. Um, by all sense of the imagination, it hits multidisciplinary, you know, it's mission critical. Um, you plug things into it, it handles, you know, pretty much the whole front to end, you know, um, you know, aspects of the kitchen. What was your learnings? How much did you have to build out before bringing this to market? Um, did you wish that you built less of it when you went to market? Did you wish you had more of it? How did you think about that with your proverbial MVP? Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that is so lucky about this endeavor is that this is a V2. So I have traveled through one, you know, very thin thread of this product end to end in the V1 that was Sprig and uh, took a lot of learnings from that path that I corrected. Some of them I kept 
in my V2. Um, so from the beginning, we've had a pretty clear roadmap of what we want to build and what we want to execute. And we've always had a stake in the ground culminating in essentially automating purchasing. We want to be able to, on behalf of a kitchen, automate their purchasing decision. Mm -hmm. And so every single product feature has been working towards that. Now, we've had customers working with us along the way saying, this is the next thing I need. This is the next thing I need. And fortunately, the other benefit I had from doing this at Sprig was that 150 culinary professionals who were top tier, you know, they came to work for the Silicon Valley well-funded tech startup conveniently redistributed back out into the culinary world, having experienced the system that I had built, having known that I was going to rebuild it. So from an initial customer base, they came to me and said, Hey, when's Galley going to be available for me to sign up? Mm-hmm. So those two aspects of having built the product sort of once before and having had this beautiful initial cohort of customers who really wanted and knew the long-term vision of our product and our sort of uh, uh, believers in what we're building um, have enabled us to build out a really rich, robust product that hasn't required a lot of pivots and missteps and you know stutter steps that a lot of the startup uh, sort of typical journey includes. Yeah, I'm sure you found some other things to be very frustrating, you know, along the way. You probably made it up in other challenges. <laughs> yeah, it definitely has not been easy, but um, we've been very <laughs> I fortunate. I don't think anybody says that the stuff can be definitely easy. But um, what is uh, the food service industry is is pretty in, in, interesting. They've got, you know, I'm I know on the the restaurant side, um, you know, there's probably ten. I would say food service distributors that make up the majority of the spend. And then the rest is very long tail, very small. Um, Manufacturers hold most of the margin. How does that factor into the customers that you serve? These other stakeholders that are so critical within the food supply chain, how do you play with them? How do you get the data? Um, Dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Um. We are focusing all of our effort and energy on the food service companies. And that's essentially the demand side of this marketplace that you're talking about with the manufacturers and the distributors and there's the long tail and all that. They all exist to service the food service companies that are ultimately buying the raw materials, converting them with recipes into something that goes to a consumer. And so we believe that those food service companies are the central cog to the entire food system. And therefore, we are focusing our efforts on making their lives better and becoming the system of record and the tool that they depend on. And what happens when we do that is that the food service companies will go to their supplier and say, we want you to send your price list to Galley. We haven't said anything to their suppliers. And it's our customers who are their customers The customers of Cisco are also our customers, these food service companies, and they're going to Cisco and U.S. Food and saying, you must send your price list to Galley, otherwise we're going to go to U.S. Foods who's willing to do it, or we're going to go to the next person who's willing to do it. And so we end up getting this data that we're not having to go and fight tooth and nail for that is on behalf of our customers um, because our customers, the food service companies, are that leverage point in the whole system. Yeah, so... In an in a ecosystem that has many different types of 
archetypes as far as shareholders, you've decided to completely dedicate yourself to the operators, so to speak, the ones that are actually providing the service to the end users. And what the manufacturers do, what the distributors do, isn't any of your business. You are 100% behind the operators and you have operator leverage to try to get what you need from the manufacturers and the distributors. Exactly. And ultimately, the operator is going to get the data that we want. They're going to get an invoice. The, the supplier mm-hmm. wants to get paid. And with the beauty of AI and technology, we can translate, we can digitize that invoice pretty easily now. Like before, that would have been a very manual process. And it's becoming easier and easier to use that as the data stream that we need to, to do the value add to the operator. And so mainly your um, commercial kitchens, you're not doing a ton of mom and pops, but where... What is the the big hot button issues within um, food tech and food service tech right now? I knew it used to be third party delivery is just eating away the smaller guys, but like, what are the you know what what is what are you seeing as some of the big big hot button issues? I mean, in our space, um, mm-hmm. the the you know explicitly not restaurants for right now. Uh, our focus space it's about. Um, Food traceability is a big one. There's a big FDA regulation that's going to come into effect in 2025 that's going to require uh, commercial kitchens, commissary kitchens to be able to demonstrate that when there's a recall in the supply chain, that they can trace that product through their kitchen to the outputs that they created so that they can notify the you know customers who had that batch that the lettuce has been recalled. And so there's regulation coming through that's going to put pressure on these commissary kitchens, commercial kitchens, where they're going to have to comply with these sorts of regulations. And our system makes that possible. Um, Another big one is the change in consumer buying behavior. Uh, You know, I was sort of an early gluten-free sort of participant, but more and more people care about what food are they eating? What diets might it align with? Is it keto? Is it you know nut free? Whatever it is, the the sort of nutrition focus and food as medicine movement is increasing consumer awareness and therefore consumer demand for that transparency and understanding of what they're being served. And so, a good example is um, you know a college or university that has a dining hall that caters to and can support a celiac student has a competitive advantage over one whose dining service is not able to support a celiac student. And we've had examples of that from our customers where literally, you know, colleges and universities and these buyers of the food service contracts and services are going to start making those decisions based on the changing uh, sort of behaviors and buying patterns of the guests who are eating the food. So from our perspective, that's a big sort of force that's um, a tailwind for us that that is a very compelling reason for why our customers onboard a system like ours because we enable them to to comply with the regulations and also gain that competitive advantage and ultimately we're going to make that just commonplace it's going to be um, abnormal to not be able to show your full ingredient list and your nutrient breakdown and eventually your carbon cost right that's going to become a thing as well so you got pretty lucky with some of these regulations that are coming down the pike. Did, did you see them yeah. coming or was that just kind of fortunate? I think, you know, I don't want to take credit necessarily uh, for, for maybe getting lucky, but like from my perspective as a consumer, if I were just to say, you know, 
what I was experiencing, my awakening to food as medicine and how it impacts my body, um, it just made sense to me that that transparency is 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 something that the that the general public should demand, and so uh, I consider that to be the future of you know people want to know what they're eating, people care about what they're eating. Also, people are going to rely on other companies to make their food, right? You know, we think about basics of economics, specialization and centralization. Consumers are going to spend more dollars buying food that someone else made for them, even if it's just a grocery store. The prepared meal aisle in the grocery store is getting bigger and the produce aisle in the you know raw ingredient aisle is getting smaller. More and more people are spending true, more of their it? wallets. <laughs> yeah. People don't want to people don't want to cook anymore. Yeah. So, and, and it just makes sense as population grows, as, as sort of the capacity grows and the quality increases, um, we're going to rely more and more on food service companies to feed us. And so we're going to also demand that transparency that we were getting by making our own food from those food service companies. And that's going to require a system that can support those companies and bring them into the digital world. That's great. Tell me a little bit about company building. <laughs> in this last couple of years you that, you know, you were, you know, raised a ton of money in 2021, you know, environments kind of shifted. How, how are you, how are you uh, dealing with all of that as um, food service is pretty non-cyclical, right? I'm sure you, it hasn't really affected your business, but I'm sure the fundraising has. Yeah. So um, we've definitely had to, you know, my, my whole thing is you, you have to have, chattering feet you know I'm a, I'm a sports player and it's all about you got to keep your feet moving so that when you get knocked you can stay standing and uh be ready to take the next hit and so that definitely happened this year uh you know with the downturn uh we had raised a bunch of money we had scaled up the team in that still sort of frothy market kind of mode and luckily you know my executive team is is fantastic and we were able to make a quick move to adjust and right size our spend so that we can uh be confident that we can weather you know whatever is to come so uh it's not easy these are not easy decisions to make but they're the important ones and the required ones to keep the business alive and you know uphold our fiduciary duty to do what's right for the company uh and you have to adjust to the changing investor market you know 35 to 50x forward multiples or probably never going to come back at least in the next few decades. So you got to adjust your strategy and your plan and uh, act accordingly to, to give yourself the runway and the oxygen you need to stay alive and, and hit the numbers that you need to make to keep growing the business. So how did you learn how to, to, to do that? Because it takes a lot of, I think, emotional maturity to a realize that, fuck, you know, like, things have changed, you know, we probably need to make some decisions. And, you know, right, as you said, right size the company and, you know, hey, like, you know, multiples of change, this is kind of crazy. Like, how do you who taught you that? I mean, was that just a lot of reading? Do you have a great support network? Are your investors super supportive? How did you how did you come across this realization? Because this is your first time as a founder. Yeah, I think all of the above. I mean, I'm personally a big sort of self-development geek. Uh, I'm luckily married to an incredible uh, executive coach and sort of professional nice. development coach, leadership development coach. So we have a lot of nerdy sort of self-development conversations. And I've read a lot of books on how to just put your ego aside and, and uh, reframe your mind to recognize that my identity is not defined by what I do. Um, 
I am an individual that is separate from my job. And that sort of decreases the sensitivity to, well, if my company's not doing well, or if I'm not growing, or if I'm not raising a series B, then that means that I'm a bad person. No, I can still be a good person and have these potentially backward steps or perceived backward steps happening in other parts of my life because I know that that's actually what's good for that entity and I can hold the business as a separate entity from myself. Um, So I think that that sort of self-exploration and self-discovery has really played into it to sort of decrease my ego and and bring things down uh, to to give me that perspective. And then also I have a great executive team. I mean, I I have, uh, I am um, lucky to have far more senior people on our team than our size and stage would uh, warrant. I think that that's a testament to our vision that we've been able to establish. My co-founder and I spent a lot of time talking about and workshopping this vision and and, and our mission and and our story. And that has attracted uh, really high talent people who then have that experience that I don't have. They have decades more work experience and have seen things that I haven't that they can speak into my life. And I'm open to that. And I welcome them, them into that. And we have very frank, you know, honest conversations. And I think that that leads to that, that uh, sort of good collective decision making. That's fantastic. I'm a big proponent of um, self-development coaching. I think that stuff's key Um, and being able to separate yourself from the business. And, you know, I think, you know, if you look back probably five years from now, you know, you'll realize that nobody was actually filming you during this process. Nobody gives a shit if you raised a series A or a series B, you know, like, yeah. or, or when you did it, it's basically, you know, you are, you weathered the storm. Right. And that's kind of just what it takes. And it takes somebody who's self-actualized to, to realize that. Um, that's awesome. So what, what are some um, great self uh, leadership bo- books that you think were instrumental to this, this process for you that you could recommend for our founder listeners? Sure. Um, so my top books, um, one of the earliest influences that isn't necessarily leadership, but that I just really enjoyed was so good. They can't ignore you. Um, blanking on the uh, author, um, by Cal Newport. Uh, that was just a good sort of perspective setting on career and, and, you know, career capital, as he calls it, um, in terms of like hardcore entrepreneurial leadership beyond, beyond entrepreneurship 2.0 was one of the first books I read when I stepped into the CEO role, uh, that was pretty instrumental in giving me that perspective and, and really like respect and, and, and focus on people and vision and company identity from that perspective that I think has done us really well. And then like the super deep nerdy, like probably way out there, uh, leadership book that I read is called Mastering Leadership, um, which is really dense and uh, incredible um, and has some really great concepts. Uh, I'm trying to pull up uh, more more of a reference than what I've just given uh, by Adams and Anderson. Um, and I got uh, clued into that because of my wife's work and she's she works with uh, a group called the Leadership Circle, um, and that's part of their sort of seminal uh, foundational books. And that that one is just like phenomenal, uh, but also really dense and and uh, requires a lot of dedication to get through. Sure. And what is uh, the best piece of business advice you've ever gotten? Hmm. Keep getting up. Hmm. 
you just got to stay resilient. It's, it's about the long haul. It's about getting up failure after failure. Um, and success is just stringing a bunch of failures together until you hit that success. Yep. There's always a move. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Benji, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a real pleasure. I can't wait to see Galley take over the world. Uh, everybody, thank you for listening. We drop an episode every Tuesday. If you like it, please subscribe, leave a review, tell a friend, and we'll see you next week. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.